Open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, and we'll read today, beginning at verse number 12 of Revelation chapter 6. To you who may be visiting, we are going through in our messages uh, on Sunday morning and sometimes Sunday evening as well. Uh, we're just preaching right through the book of the Revelation. So let me urge you, if you want to get an overall view of what the Bible talks about in this wonderfully thrilling book of Revelation, don't miss any of the services, either Sunday morning or Sunday night. Now tonight, I'm going to deal with chapter 7 exclusively. Uh, people have a lot of questions about who are, and I've heard they say, about 144,000 people going to be sealed. Who are those people? Another question, what is their purpose? What role will they fulfill? Uh, somebody said, am I, am I one of those 144,000? Uh, again, another question rises as to the time of the tribulation that's talked about in the Bible. And the question is, will there be anybody saved during the tribulation? I want you to come tonight with your Bible uh, and also a good pen and a piece of paper and we're going to look through chapter 7 tonight in our study in the evening message. Now this morning, Revelation 6, we'll read at verse 12 after we've had just a brief prayer together. Heavenly Father, we need divine wisdom this morning and we come to worship Thee and we come not only to worship You in song as we have done and our hearts have been lifted as the congregation has sung and lifted our hearts toward thee as the choir has blessed us and as the special number has again lifted our eyes to Christ. We pray that this morning we shall give undivided attention now to the word that Jesus Christ will be seen in all of his glory and grant that if there are those here among us who, Lord, are searching who are longing, who are hungering and thirsting for peace in their hearts, for meaning in life, help them to realize that that very answer is in the person of Jesus. We ask that you will be honored now. Fill me as thy preacher with thy spirit, that we may say the right things and fill our people who are here with thy spirit, that they may hear and apply the truth of God in the right way to their hearts. Be honored in Lord our thoughts our words, our deeds, and we'll carefully thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Now in Revelation 6, verse 12, and we come to the opening of the sixth seal. Remember, in our studies thus far, we have, uh, have looked at the opening of five of the seven seals that were found to be seals in that scroll which John saw uh, in chapter 5. And you remember the scroll, as we have tried to explain to you, is simply, in simple words, the title deed to this earth. And we talked to you some Sundays ago on the subject, who owns this world anyway? Who owns this world anyway? We have established this fact that our Lord, the Lamb of God, is the only one worthy to have and hold the deed to this earth. Number one, because this world is his by creative rights. He is the creator of this world. But also, he is the rightful owner, the only worthy one, because he has redeemed this world. He has purchased this world by the price of his own life's blood. 
And so we find that uh, Jesus, the worthy one, yet uh, has not rightful rule over this world at present. We find in the scripture that Satan, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, now holds sway over this present world system. And he does so because the first man and his wife, our father and mother, Adam and Eve, abdicated the throne of rulership over this earth. They abdicated that position, handed, as it were, the ownership and the rulership of this world over to Satan. And I'll not go into that story and truth in the book of Genesis, but I think you're acquainted with that. However, our Lord is the rightful owner and he will one day rule on this very earth literally and physically. The Bible predicts that kingdom of Messiah all through the prophecies of the Old Testament as well as the New Testament without hardly any exception. The ultimate goal of the prophets and their revelation was that of a coming kingdom of God's anointed one. Now, if you want to know where this world is headed, I'm going to tell you where it's headed. It's headed for the rulership of King Jesus, thank God. That's where it's headed. And so our Lord indeed will rule one day, but he does not now. However, only in the hearts of those who willingly submit themselves to the King, the Lord Jesus, and we can know something of the kingdom blessing of God in our hearts, though we do not as yet experience that in its fullness on the outside. Now remember this, that Satan holds sway over this world at the present. But now watch me and follow this thought carefully. He was not willing to give up his rulership over this world without a struggle and without a fight. He has many who follow with him in their opposition to God, in their rejection of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus. But one day, listen to me, the one who holds the rightful title deed to this world is going to set in motion a series of judgment events that will evict, as we have referred to him, the old squatter from the property that rightly belongs to God. The fight will ensue. Judgment is going to come. But the devil, who is the ruler of this present world system, will, will be evicted and our Lord will come and set up his reign on this earth, this present earth, for 1,000 years. Now, in Revelation 20, you find the mention of that time period. A thousand years. Fell asked me one time, what does that word, that term a thousand years mean in the book of Revelation? I said it means exactly what it says. Means a thousand years. Anybody, uh, you don't even have to have gone to school to understand that. And so the Lord simply is coming to set up his reign. However, notice the simple chart that after Messiah's kingdom, that very kingdom will merge into the eternal kingdom of God wherein there is new heavens and a new earth. 
All right, we've come now in chapter 6 to the opening of the seals, which is the indication of God's Son, God moving in, as it were, to evict the old squatter. Are you following me now? Watch carefully. Keep your eyes open. And, uh, and uh, if you're to sleep in this, uh, if you're here, uh, we may leave you and you'll think the rapture's already taken place and you would be in a mess then, wouldn't you? Huh? All right, all right, watch carefully. So here, we come to the sixth, uh, the opening of the sixth seal. By the way, let me just give you before I look at this with you, let me give you this bit of just overall information about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm talking about necessarily the rapture. We know that's going to occur before our Lord comes literally and places his feet upon this earth and sets up his reign. But let me give you this bit of overall information. Both the Old and the New Testaments are actually filled with promises concerning a coming again of Jesus Christ. In fact, 1,845 references are found in the Old Testament alone. 1,845 references to the coming again, the setting up of the king of his kingdom upon this earth. Now, my friend, listen, if the Bible is to be believed at all, you're going to have to accept the fact that that very coming kingdom is in the making and is coming as our Lord has prophesied. Not only that, but in the New Testament, 17 books so, or rather, overall, rather, 17, let me back up, 17 books in the Old Testament bear reference to and deal with the subject of the coming of the Lord Jesus. 17 of the books in the Old Testament. Now follow me again. Of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are 318 references in the New Testament to the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that tallies out to? One out of every 30 verses, one out of every 30 verses in the Scripture, the New Testament, refers to the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. 27 of the New Testament books deal with this very matter of the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. One other startling discovery, and that's this. For every one time, are you listening? For every one time you find in the Bible a reference to the first coming of Christ, the birth of Christ you will find eight times a reference to the return, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, wouldn't you say, with that much territory and space and that much attention given to such a truth as the second coming of Christ, wouldn't you say that behooves us to know what this event of the second coming of Christ is really all about and what's tied into it? I think definitely it does, don't you? Now then let's look at the sixth six opening of the sixth seal. At verse 12, we had not read it yet, have we? Huh? I get absorbed in this. I forget sometimes, all right? Read it with me, not out loud, but follow. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, 
And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became as blood. Now try to envision in your mind while reading these things. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth. Even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs. When she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Now let me give you four words that if you'll jot them down, will keep our thoughts in line with what these verses deal with. First of all, at verse 12 through 14, notice the cataclysm. And that's what is described here, a cataclysmic event. The cataclysm in verses 12 through 14. At verse 15 through 16, notice the cry. Now, please don't worry if you're like me. If you don't know how to spell cataclysm, just put C-A-T and and ism out there. You'll maybe understand it when you get home, all right? The cry, however, is heard in verse 15 and 16. And then notice at verse 17 what we simply term the commencement. The commencement. And you'll understand when I explain that. And then verse 16b, notice the second part of verse 16. Here is what I call an apparent contradiction. An apparent contradiction. So I have four words and they all begin with the letter C. So hopefully we remember them a whole lot easier and better. A cataclysm, a cry, a commencement, a contradiction. Now note if you will that the first four seals of these seven, and we've already looked at those four, that deal with the four horsemen, the riders on the horses. Of, uh, of the one who comes offering peace and then war and famine and death. These four seals as judgment issues forth when they're opened uh, were at the hands of that first writer whom we identified not as the Christ but as the Antichrist, that one world ruler who will come upon the scene And all of the things that come forth of those first four seals are from the hand of the Antichrist. He comes offering peace, makes a covenant with Israel, but he breaks that covenant according to the prophecy in the the middle of a seven-year period or in the middle of this designated period we have here known as the tribulation. In other words, he's made a covenant and now he breaks it at the middle of the three, uh, after three and a half years and then uh, there is great ruin and havoc and devastation that occurs. But with the opening of this sixth seal, now watch this, the fifth seal had to do with a scene in heaven. Remember what we talked about last Sunday. The souls under the altar cried for vengeance and so forth. Now watch, at the beginning of this sixth seal, the judgments take on a supernatural tent. They are from heaven itself. 
They are issuing from the hand of Almighty God. So here, keep this in mind as you're studying with me. These seals do not happen like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They stop and then something else takes over. Oftentimes you'll find that the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the judgments that are represented the seven vials are often overlapping that they cover not just a year or two years, but you'll find that they go all the way through the seven years of this designated time known as the tribulation. Now let's look at verse 17 first of all, and let me ask you to think about the commencement. The commencement, and I mean by that, notice the verse says, the great day of his wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand the great day of his wrath? Now, the tribulation period itself that will begin immediately following the rapture of the born-again believers, the church, the saved, immediately after that, the tribulation period will begin, which will last seven years. According to Daniel's prophecy back in Daniel chapter 9, where you remember Israel's, God's dealing with Israel as a nation, there were 490 years the prophet said is determined. 483 of those years have already expired and did so at the time of the cross, the crucifixion, or the cutting off of Messiah. Now, God was dealing with Israel as a nation 483 years. But when that time came, they crucified the Lord Jesus. They rejected Messiah. God, as it were, we've used this illustration, punched the stop clock. And he then turned and began to deal with that body known as the church. Now, I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about a body of born-again believers, a body of born-again baptized believers who own Christ as their Savior and Lord. Now, that's the church. And the church is comprised of both Jew and Gentile. But keep this in mind, lest I forget this. Don't ever confuse Israel with the church, nor the church with Israel. And many people get in trouble because of that. And they'll read the Old Testament and say, well, this applies to the church. God's dealing with the Old, uh, in the Old Testament with Israel. And you need to keep that in mind. The, and there are three groups, the Jew, the Gentile, and the church of our Lord. So you need to keep those groups distinct. So here, uh, the fact is, the Lord turns at the time of the crucifixion. Uh, he turns now to those uh, who will make up the body of the church. Turns to the Gentiles. Blindness in part, Paul said in Romans 11, has happened in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That is, until our mission in this age of the church, in this age of grace is complete. Now, at the end of that period, now watch this. At the end of that period known as the church, which will end and has been going now for some 2,000 years. Its ministry begun effectively on the day of Pentecost and will continue until the moment of the rapture. You see that orange arrow on my chart? At the rapture of the church, the Lord will have ceased his dealing with the church. 
Now, in your Bible, Revelation 2 and 3 deals exclusively with the church. At chapter 4, verse 1, we find John being called up to come up hither, called up with God. A scene occurs in heaven in chapter 4 and 5. At chapter 6 of Revelation, we have the beginning of this tribulation period. Which period? Now, what's this? is God's resuming his dealing with Israel for that one last week. That is a period of seven years, of seven years. And so the tribulation lasts a period of seven years. Now then, these things are going to occur under the seals, the trumpets, the pouring out of the vials of the bold wrath of God will occur in this period known as the tribulation. Are you following me? Some of you look like you've been hit in the head with a do before. Are you getting this? Not yet like that. Are you following me, folks? I'm not up here taking every time. If you don't nod, I'll start all over. Huh? All right? <laughs> okay. You're always helpful. Okay. So here's the period known as the tribulation. But now I want you to watch verse 17 that we read here in chapter 6. He calls it the great tribulation. Now the tribulation period we could divide into two periods. We could say when we speak of the tribulation, we're talking about indeed the whole seven-year period. But we have a beginning time of the tribulation period, which approximately or apparently will be three and a half years. And therein comes a time of peace. Everything seems to be going fine. The church is gone. That old antagonistic bunch of fundamental Bible-believing Christians, they're out of the way now. And the church of the world program can go on just like they want it to go on. No opposition, no conflict. And so the church and that bunch of uh, uh, insane, born-again people, they're out of the picture now. And so what happened is this. Seems like everything's going on fine until the middle of the period. In other words, the, the coming ruler has made that covenant with Israel. Guarantee them, guaranteeing them safety, protection. Now you look at the news today. All the threats against little Israel. All the power that could be unleashed on them. Uh, Sodom insane has even threatened uh, to uh, launch missiles against Israel if he is attacked by the United States. Now watch what I'm trying to tell you. All of the things that you're seeing and hearing in the Middle East right now, folks, are only preparatory steps toward what God has prophesied was going to take place a long time ago. Israel became a nation in 1948. For 2,000 years, they scattered all over this world, north, east, south, and west. And for years, Soviet Russia would not even permit many of them to get exit visas and move from that country. But isn't it amazing now that all of a sudden they seem to grant thousands and Israel now is preparing for as many as 100,000 immigrants, Jewish immigrants from Russia. You say, what's that got to do with anything? It's got a lot to do with what God said is going to happen. He said it would. He said he'll say to the north, give up, give up. He'll draw them in from the north, the south, the east, the west. He's going to draw his people. Now, we're already seeing in part that you'll not see a total restoration of Israel until this period we're talking about. And if you're saved, you're going to be in heaven and you can just read the headlines up there. But anyway, what I'm telling you, these things are upon us. 
And right now, before us, the eyes of the world are being focused on the Middle East. God's drawing the attention of this world to this little part of the world so men and women will realize God's Son is coming again, I guarantee you. Ah, you say, I've heard that all my life. Yeah, God knew it'd be some peck wood like you'd say that too. He said, there'll be the scoffers come in the last day say, where is the promise of his coming? For all things continue as they've always been. Why, I've heard that all my life. Where is the promise? And the Lord said, the Lord's not slack concerning his promises. As some men count slackness. But he is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to finish. You know what God's doing? He's trying to wake this world up. He's trying to wake folks up in this audience right here this morning to the fact, mister, things are coming quickly and swiftly to a cataclysmic end as far as this very system and the world as we know it is. God's moving along. He's not behind schedule. Just, I mean, on target. Just moving, one attitude change in the Middle East. Uh, countries aligning. Listen, it's getting set. I'm going to tell you that. All right, watch carefully now. So here's the commencement. I, I like got carried away there and forgot to tell you this. Now, what we have here is evidently when the term the great tribulation mentioned is the beginning of the last half of the tribulation. It is the beginning of the last three and one half years of this seven-year period. Now, the great tribulation opens and closes, get this, with great upheavals in nature. It begins, opens, and closes this last three and a half years with great upheavals in nature. Now let me ask you to read just a moment a prophecy from the Old Testament regarding this. Look back in the book of Joel chapter 2. Here's a word concerning the opening of this period, of this great tribulation. Tribulation such as the world has never known, never has experienced, never will again, Watch what he said. Joel chapter 2 and verse number 30 and 31. And Joel said way back, 800 years before Christ was born, listen. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. He's talking about the climactic judgment of God. And it shall come to pass, watch, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. Why? The Son of God's coming there, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now notice we've already read here in Revelation 6 where men will cry for the rocks on the mountains to fall on them. But the prophet said, it'll come to pass in that day, whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. These folks are calling on the wrong source. They're calling on the rocks, the mountains, materialism, earthly things. And yet he's saying, if you'd ask the Lord, he'd save you. But man, not going to do that. He's going to try to hide as he even does today from the face of the Lord. So here's the beginning, Acts chapter 2 and verse number 20. And Simon Peter in that message on the day of Pentecost even mentions this that Joel has declared. 
concerning the events of this great tribulation period. And he said it verse number 20 of chapter 2 of Acts. And he said, listen carefully, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. So this Old Testament as well. It's something God foresaw and shows us through the prophets. Uh, now, as to the close of this tribulation period, now, I don't want to take time, our time's get, gotten away from us almost, but let me give you these references, check on this afternoon, that deal with the increase and the intensity of this. In Joel chapter 3, verse 9 through 17. Also, Isaiah 13, verse 9 through 13. And also, Isaiah 34, Verse 1 through 4, Isaiah 34, verse 1 through 4. And also, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29. The Lord in all these verses deals with this, this upheaval in nature. The upheaval in nature from the hand of God. All right, now watch. Look at verse, back to Revelation 6. Look at verse 12 through 14 and, look, and consider the cataclysm that's going to occur. The great catastrophes as these things fall upon the earth. Now, he mentions that there was a great earthquake for, because rather, of the fact that today earthquakes are on the increase does not mean that the earthquakes you're having today are fulfillments of what this verse prophesies. They are but foreshadowings of the terrible, the great earthquake that God mentions in this verse that is yet to come on this earth. Do you realize there are three earthquakes mentioned in the book of Revelation? Three great ones. In this verse, also in chapter 11 at verse 13, and also in chapter 16 at verse 18 and 19, there are three major quakes that are mentioned. Now, this is what we're seeing today is not a fulfillment, but I believe, number one, God is simply saying through what we're experiencing today that the, this, is, this can definitely and possibly and will take place. They're not uncommon. We know about them. And there, there, are, there are earthquakes of, of numerous dimensions and sizes as far as an, an intensity is concerned. Many different types of earthquakes. But they can take place. Uh, in the last 4,000 years, a man by the name of R.A. Daly, in a book that he wrote recently, Our Mobile Earth, Mr. Daly simply stated, and I quote, in the last 4,000 years, earthquakes have caused the deaths of over 13 million people. In the last 4,000 years, earthquakes alone, 13 million people. That's astounding. What I'm trying to get you to understand is this is a supernatural thing that God's going to let come on this earth as a means of judgment. Now, I found an interesting thing I think you need to know. How that even today earthquakes are increasing. Listen carefully. In the ninth century, the ninth century, there was one major earthquake. One. In the 11th century, there were two. In the 13th century, there were three 
major earthquakes. Now, there are smaller tremors. In the 16th and 17th centuries, there were only two to each century. In the 18th century, watch as we're coming close to our century. In the 18th century, there has been recorded by, by the records five major earthquakes in the 18th century. In the 19th century, the century before ours, there were nine major earthquakes. So far in the 20th century, this is our century, over 40 major earthquakes have been recorded. Now what I want you to see in what I've just read you is the fact of the increase of these earthquakes of major proportion. In the world almanac, I want you to listen to this set of facts. There were only six earthquakes of strength, that is of major portion, between 1800 and 1896. But in each decade from 1897 to 1947, there were two or three. In the decade, that's 10 year period, from 1947 to 1956, there were seven. From 1957, in this decade, 57 to 1966, there were 17. The year 1976 experience, this is back even 76, here it is 90. In 1976, there were at least 50 significant quakes with an intensity that registered on the Richter scale of 6.5. That's pretty powerful. And there were 18 in that same period, 18 that registered 7.0. Notice the increase in intensity and severity. And an estimated, the world uh, all in excess, an estimate estimated 695,000 deaths, in, uh, which is the highest in modern history, and these reported by the U.S. Geological Survey and so forth. Let me read you this. The earthquakes were the greatest recorded intensity since 1930. So 1930 was the earthquake in Alaska in 1964, which had a magnitude on the scale of 8.9. China had an earthquake in 1976. It was registered as a killer quake. It registered simply 8.2 on the Richter scale. An 8.9, now listen to this, an 8.9 earthquake is the equivalent to an explosion 100 times greater than the largest nuclear device ever detonated. Now when John says, and the Lord said, John, there's going to be a great earthquake. Can you imagine an earthquake jarring this very earth? And John said, here's what happens. The mountains move from their place. The islands fled away. Now, I want to tell you something. You can say, that old preacher trying to scare us if you want to. You can take whatever attitude you please, but I'm going to guarantee you what God said and prophesied that has already taken place, what he prophesied is going to take place is going to. Now you can mark that down. And some folks want to sneer that. They want to turn away from that. But all oh, my friend, all God in his love is trying to do is to warn us of coming judgment and to offer us salvation and mercy and redemption in Jesus Christ. 
Charleston, South Carolina, some years ago, experienced a great earthquake. A man who went through that said that he had a strange experience of feeling that he had nothing to stand up to or to hold on to. He looked at the most solid structures and they were toppling and falling. He rushed out into an open space and he said the firm ground was heaving. It looked, he looked to the great forest trees and they were swaying, he said, like reeds in a storm. The hills were reeling. The sea was rocking in a raging tumult. Do you remember when the scripture talks about the earthquake and the sea waves roaring? There was an earthquake that happened in the floor of the Pacific Ocean a few years back and it rushed into Japan, one of the most devastating tidal waves that Japan had ever experienced. That tidal wave traveled at the rate of over 400 miles an hour as a result of the trembling of the earth. I want you to understand something. You and I do not live on an unshakable planet. There's a little village in a distant land, they said, that has experienced an earthquake. And the people became very fearful. But they noticed a dear old lady who seemed to be calm. And they said to her, Mother, are you not afraid? Are you not fearful? And she said, No, but I rejoice that I know a God who is able to shake the whole world. I'm glad I know a God like that. Now I'm glad that that same God offers refuge for us, but he offers it here and now, not then. So he's simply saying, here is a time of cataclysmic judgment upon the earth. I don't have time to deal with more than that. But I want you to look at verse 15 16. I'm going to close. Look at the cry. The cry. And the verse says, and the kings of the earth. Now we're talking about hot shots. We're talking about big folks. And the kings of the earth. The great men, the rich men, the chief captains, and the mighty men, every bondman and free man, hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. I want you to remember this. God is no respecter of persons when it comes to salvation nor when it comes to judgment. He is no respecter of persons. Notice the list here. All of these kings, great men, rich men, also the bondmen, those upon this earth. Notice that the Bible reveals that they are literally helpless before the wrath of the Lamb. Now, you listen to me. You can wiggle your way out from under Holy Ghost conviction of the fact that you're a sinner and need a Savior. But I want to tell you something. You will never wiggle your way out from under the wrath of the Lamb of God. Oh, how much better that a man turn to Christ now and bow the knee willingly and confess him as Lord and Savior than to wait until every knee is forced to bow and confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. But in that coerced bowing, there is no redemption. Only as men willingly bow to him is their redemption. Men today are too proud to call upon the name of God. I talked to somebody in this audience right now and if it hadn't, were not for your pride you'll have already cried out unto God God have mercy on me save me. 
But you're so afraid of what somebody will think about you, what somebody will think about you. Friday night in our meeting up in North Carolina, a dear lady, 76 years old, walked down the aisle weeping. And she said, all my life I've been a young girl, tried to stay morally clean, been in the church, but I have never until this night trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Here was a lady who said, my pride through the years because of my morality, my goodness, has kept me from trusting Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, friend, there's nothing worth keeping you away from Jesus. Nothing worth it. Look at the alternative. If you reject Christ, look at the judgment. Look at hell itself. Look at eternity without God. Oh, what a horrible thought. And so here are these. These very rulers, by the way, who under the force, first seals, have now frightened the world in the subjection and, and, and the helpless despair. They themselves now are in that state of helplessness. It only reminds me of the Bible principle. Be sure your sins will find you out. Chickens come home to roost. These rulers frightened the peoples of the world, made them bow. And now look at how chickens come home to roost. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And oh, if we only knew what's, wait, do you, do you realize, dear man and woman, that your children who reject Jesus Christ are going to head for this judgment? Your husband, your wife, your neighbor, your best friend? who does not know Christ as Savior, oh, what terrible judgment awaits men apart from Jesus Christ. Men today, just like they'll do then, however, call on everything else but God. They'll call on the mountains, the hills to fall on us, and yet you say, how strange. And yet how strange it is that today you call on the God of pleasure, call on the God of possession, the God of position, the God of pride, to kind of give you a hiding place, but there's no hiding place from him. Hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne. Then finally, I'll close with this fourth word, verse 16, that I said seems to be a contradiction. Now, here's why I say that. Notice the term, the wrath of the Lamb. Do you see that? The wrath of the Lamb. We have read in the Bible of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We have seen the slain Lamb yonder as one slain in Revelation 4. We have read of him as the lamb without spot and without blemish. We have heard that he is the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world. Isaiah said he is like a lamb led to the slaughter, opens not his mouth, like a lamb dumb before his shearers. But notice what a change in the description of the lamb. It is the wrath of the lamb. What a change has come in the Savior of men. Instead of Savior, he is now judge. I've told the story before I tell it and close yet again. A young man was out swimming one day in a river. And his legs began to cramp and he started going under and drowning. And it so happened that a man was walking by near that stream and heard the cries of the young man. And he... He made a dive into the river and swam out to the young fellow and rescued him, brought him in, saved him. A week or so passed, and that same young man was standing because of a crime before a judge in a courtroom. And the young man, when the judge walked out and sat down behind the bench, the young man looked at the judge's face and smiled, and he thought, I know him. He is the man who rescued me from drowning. 
Oh, he said to himself, things are going to go light on me, I'm sure, with such a kind man who sits behind the bench. The young man's case were brought before the judge. The prosecuting attorney laid out all the facts. The young man was found guilty and finally he stood for the sentence to be read. It was a severe sentence of imprisonment. And the young man looked up at the judge and said, but sir, don't you know me? Don't you recognize me, sir? Why, he said, I am the man you rescued from drowning but a while back. You remember walking down the side of that river and I was drowning and you, 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 you dove into the river and swam and rescued me. Don't you know who I am, sir? Have pity upon me. And the judge simply looked with sternness at the lad and said, Son, yesterday I was your savior. Today I am your judge. You have a choice. To know him as your savior or someday know him as your judge. He is as severe in his judgment as he is kind in his mercy. And thank God I can tell you today this is God's day of grace and mercy. He offers you salvation. Folks, listen to me. It's coming. Let the scoffer scoff, scoff the unbelievers doubt. But what God has said in this old book, just as sure as you breathe, is coming to pass very quickly upon this earth. Are you ready? If you met him today, would you meet him as judge or as Savior? Let's pray together, please. You've been very kind, but I want to tell you something. I'm not interested in just standing up here taking up your time. Listen, I'm not reading you out of fairy tale books. I'm not reading Eugene Dixon and some demon-possessed astrologer. I'm talking to you from the inspired, unerring Word of God. But the same Bible that predicts for sure coming judgment has predicted salvation for every man and woman who will receive Christ. God offers redemption. And it's yours to receive by faith. Today, I give you that opportunity in this service. If you have never received Jesus Christ, would you come willingly today, bowing your knee before him, asking him into your heart and life? And I may be talking to some born-again child of God. Your life's drifting. God has no rightful place of priority in your life. Pleasure, possessions, playtime, business time, everything takes precedence over God. I want to tell you, one of these days, this world's going to crumble. I wonder what you'd do today if all that you're relying on are crumbled beneath the quaking, shaking, trembling of an earthquake. Friend, one of these days, it's coming. If you're hanging on to the things of this world and that's keeping you from Christ, listen, you're hanging on to a sinking ship. You're hanging on to a sinking ship. You've invested your life in stocks that are falling and failing and will never produce. God help you to come to Christ. And if you're a Christian, that you'll sell out to him. Let him use you. Let's stand to our feet as we pray together.